Open racism from a sitting US president towards other elected representatives in 2009 raises many questions about the state of democracy, the history of white supremacy, and what it is to read the Bible in ways that turn our world upside down. In this episode, Jared visits Reverend Dr. Todd Yeary, JD, PhD. And as the initials after his name suggest, Reverend Dr. Todd has a doctorate in law with a focus on human rights and a doctorate in philosophy. He's the senior pastor of Douglas Memorial Community Church in Baltimore. And as you'll hear, there is much more to the neighborhood he pastors than merely one of the locations The Wire was filmed. As well as a pastor, theologian, and activist, Dr. Yiri has an impressive resume as an educator, including a decade serving as an associate director of the Center for Black Studies at Northern Illinois University. This episode is an altar call from an incredible preacher. So let's jump in. Pastor Todd, when you're ready, would you open us in prayer? Certainly. God, these are the times that try our souls. These are also the times that test the durability of your gospel. We thank you that your good news has been proven over the years and down through the generations. It still affords us hope and a future. So God, we stand at the intersection between where we've been and where we're going. We ask that you would be the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path, Mm. that should we deviate as we travel, your grace will guide us back to the fulfillment of our purpose. Bless us now in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Pastor Todd, I'm deeply appreciative for uh, your time and your generosity with us. Uh, Most Australians will know this town because of the wire. (laughs) It was very um, uh, uh, popular at at home. And uh, this has been where you've pastored for quite some time now. About in in my 11th year now. Over a decade. Yeah. Um, So your perspective and uh, time with you in particular, I'm deeply thankful for. And the question that I've been starting this podcast with is when do you remember first encountering scripture? Um, what uh, smells or sights or uh, people uh, come to mind when you think about your early engagement with our sacred text? There are two answers I'll give to that. One is the encounter and the second is the awareness of an encounter. Huh. My first encounter knowing the story of my mother would have been as John the Baptist's first encounter was in the womb. Wow. Come from a very strong religious tradition of my mother and my father, preachers on both sides Mm. uh, in the family. My mother was a teacher. Uh, I'm a PK of a PK on my dad's side. And so uh, a lot of the experiential side probably predates my awareness of myself. Mm. That's just kind of putting together and piecing together the story. So we know that children in the womb can hear. Mm. They learn voices, they learn intonation, they learn rhythm. Mm. And so my mother being a singer in the choir, likely sang while she carried me, And so my first encounter was in vitro. Incredible. Yeah. My first awareness of an encounter is when I'm of age to remember what it was like to be told, you're going to church. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the negotiation at the time I was growing up uh, in the South, you had blue laws and not a whole lot of Sunday option in Augusta, Georgia. But it was what you could not do the night before if you did not meet your obligation and responsibility the morning after. So if you missed Sunday, the next Saturday was going to be pretty difficult for you socially. (laughs) Um, As a young kid, you really didn't have a choice. Everybody Mm -hmm. got up and went to church. Wow. Um, And so the the experiential level uh, goes back to my earliest uh, maybe formative connection was when um, in our neighborhood, when we were looking for a community-based church, there was no congregation uh, in, in the Bellamy section of Augusta. 
And we had reached out to actually the local presbytery to see if they would be willing to plant a church. And so the early meetings of that church before we had a building, uh, those meetings were held in the cafeteria of the elementary school that I attended. And so there was a link, a continuity between uh, the five days that we spent in the classroom and everything else that happened on the weekend. My first grade teacher was the pastor's wife. Right. Uh, my fifth grade teacher was the the organist's mm-hmm. wife. My third grade teacher was on one of the leadership boards with my mother. And so there was really no uh, at that at that stage probably escaping uh, <laughs> the continuity of relationship that makes the church the 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 connector of people and not just a building. Yes. And so what we didn't have in a building, we had in relationship with one another. And so I learned the power of scripture bringing us together Mm. at that level. But then it was also on the other side, my mother's older sister, uh, my mother's deceased, her her sister's still living, Pentecostal pastor. Uh, When we would go home to see my grandmother, we would have church in the den of my grandmother's house. And so the sisters would get up, fix breakfast. And as soon as breakfast had been served and they had solved all of the educational issues because most of them were teachers, my grandmother, who had a very severe rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. and was largely bedridden, would get up from her bed, put on her church hat, and with her walker, she would come down that hallway, which would have had to be uh, a very painful, difficult process in and of itself. Sure. But she would take her place on what would be the front pew of the den in right. that house in Florence, South Carolina, and we would have church. Now, much to the chagrin of myself and my brothers and all, you know, a bunch of cousins, we were all the same age, and it was delaying our ability to go out in the front yard and play football with a pine cone because we didn't have an actual football. So wow. we used the pine cone as the football and we chose sides and we did all of that. But those were the areas and the times when I remember being exposed, maybe not so much to the words themselves, mm. but to the effect of the words on the intentionality of how our family example. Yes. On, particularly on my mother's side, yeah. um, kind of instilled that in us. Mm. As a pastor, I learned something a little different from watching my father and his father. Mm. Uh, both of them came late to uh, the ministry to be ordained. Uh, and so they navigated a little differently. The discipline that started very early on on my mother's side becomes the grace that receives us if we get a late start. Some, some of us uh, need, need a little more time, need a little more <laughs> flexibility to get there. And that seemed to be kind of the story on that side. But mm-hmm. from that, I learned that there was no exclusivity mm-hmm. in the gospel that disqualifies one and prioritizes the other. Mm-hmm. And so when we start having these... Um, interrelated, interdependent conversations. Mm. No one comes to the table with a sense of entitlement. Yes. Everyone comes with an invitation that in spite of our limitations, whatever they might be, Mm. there is a place, there's a seat at the table Mm. that affirms not only current value, but future potential. That allows us to appreciate not only how we've arrived where we are, but not to be content, not to try to get even further and to bring others with us. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's that context that that raises. I was I was an altar boy in a Presbyterian church. Uh uh, I'm the altar boy that uh, a friend of mine, we we sat uh, on the first pew. And because you know we didn't necessarily like the preaching moment, we decided we were going to open the hymn book one day. And uh, while Reverend Miller was preaching, we were singing the hymns under our breath, thinking no one could hear us. And finally, about midway through the sermon, Reverend Miller just looked up and said, "Boys," and that was our cue that you know song time was over. We we would just have to kind of <laughs> kind of suffer. So 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 with all of the curiosity, all of the testing, all of the pushing, uh, all of the structure 
there was uh, an embrace of the idea that God loves me for who I am mm. and not judge me for who I'm supposed to be. Wow. And so in that, I meet grace. Mm. And so it's kind of the continuum. You hear it first in the womb. And then you experience when you come out. Yeah. And then you walk with it as you continue to grow. Mm. And you pass it on as your legacy that someone else might have a similar experience and encounter on their own terms. Incredible. And I mean, such a vivid picture of scripture being sung over you in utero like and and the you can hear the importance of community which in some of the people that i've interviewed um uh it's this uh hyper experience of me and a book but i hear you learning to read through the eyes and through the songs and through the love and around a table and in a den and then on a front row where you are who you are because of who you belong to, who give you this book um, and the authority of this library of yeah. sacred text is yours because of the, the loving hands of others who tell you to stop singing while, you, while the preacher's preaching. And that's, that's incredibly powerful. And whose hands would nurture you mm. even when they themselves could not read the words of the book. Yes. So my mother's mother had a fourth grade education. Huh. And very often she would have us, when we would visit, sit on the bed in her room uh, across from the hospital bed where um, she would rest and she would have us to read. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until later that I realized that my grandmother was having us to read those things that she could not read herself. Incredible. Not that she couldn't confirm that we knew how to read. She would know that we could read based on how we read. Yes. Right? What's in the inflection? What's in the intonation? Mm. What's in terms of the rhythm? Mm. And so what my grandmother showed us is that there's a rhythm to life. Mm. Very often we, we judge who has rhythm based on technical qualification. Mm -hmm. My grandmother had good rhythm. Yes. She just didn't have good literacy skills. Mm. And it is from that rhythm that she set an example for holiness. Mm for her 11 children, one who died relatively young. Mm. All of them raised their own kids. And at the time my grandmother passed, she had 28 grandchildren of various ages and ranges. And all of us had, had shared in the same example of love and nurture and holiness from a woman with a fourth grade reading education. My goodness. And I'm hearing as, you, as you're explaining this, that um, you know, terms that I can barely spell, but we're, we're talking epistemology, we're talking ways of knowing, and I, I hear from the experience of the, um, the holiness of your grandmother that you were taught a way of knowing scripture that isn't, can't be disconnected from how you move in worship, from uh, how you serve others, from how you love and, and care, and that tenderness from your grandmother shapes the way as you read to her the book that she has given to you. Yeah. That's a beautiful picture. It's often unsung mm. because we measure um, we measure how we have lived up to scripture by terms that very often tell us nothing. Huh. The fact that you can recite it mm -hmm. does not mean you can live it. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It goes to the you mm -hmm. know the best. Uh, it's better to live a sermon than to try to preach one. Amen. You know, when you <laughs> when you can't live it out, use words. You know, kind of yes. that 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 kind of dichotomy. That that really, scripture inspires us to be the embodiment yes. of what it what it means to be disciples of yeah. Christ. And and so, what could we communicate if we could not use words? How would uh -huh. we show? Uh, that the, 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 the biblical notions of justice and compassion yes. and righteousness are true principles for us beyond our conversation, mm -hmm. it would require us to find ways to show, mm -hmm. to, to, to give examples mm -hmm. of how we live. And that's what I remember distinctly from uh, my grandmother who 
when I knew her as grandma, my grandfather had already passed. He passed the mm -hmm. year before uh, I was born. And so she, she bore a great deal of responsibility and obligation for yes. our family to model what we often call these days godliness. Mm -hmm. Uh, not by this false sense of perfection, yes. but by the willingness to be perfected in spite of our flaws and our yeah. difficulties. Amen. And I'm already hearing in your responses um, the, the answer to this question, but I, I like to ask, like, was your uh, encounter with Scripture something that was uh, oppressive or liberating? And maybe in your answer, because I'm aware, you mentioned Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, you can be as vague as you want to be, but roughly, uh, this childhood is happening in which kind of decade? Oh well, you know, this, <laughs> at, at this point, the hair doesn't lie, so you know, I might as well affirm what is what is clearly getting more obvious to me by the day. Uh, I was born in 1966. Okay. So if you think about it, where we where we are historically as a nation, mm. uh, culturally, the South is still putting up great resistance to the notion of uh, inclusion and mm -hmm. integration, desegregation. Mm -hmm. I was of the uh, kind of the early generation of students after Georgia's resistance to the implementation of school desegregation post-Brown, wow. where busing becomes a real big discussion yes. uh, in that frame. Uh, and, and so in that decade, what we had was a hope that had to be grounded in something that is certain, right? The mm -hmm. anchor for our soul. Uh, as a community of, of folks who were networked, we, we mm -hmm. survived. Miss Rod lived across the street from us, right? Mm -hmm. We remember the names. Uh, the Dashes lived next door to us. Mm -hmm. And so wherever we went, that the community became synonymous with the word we call extended family. Yes. And wherever you went, there was the same kind of, of uh, kind of uniform application of compassion and affirmation mm. uh, that that uh, I think we we grieve because it is not as easily seen today. Doesn't sure. mean it's not there. We have to look harder in the midst of uh, a lot of other opportunity and distraction. Mm. Uh, but I'm aware your childhood is happening in a setting where obviously um, scripture, or I mean, I'll allow you to answer this question, but. I can already hear the the, the liberating, emancipating, and uh, dignity affirming, and uh, <clears throat> the calling of into being more that this community, this family is, is asking yeah. of you. And yet, not far from where you, the scripture is being used in a very different way. To, I mean, as an Australian, like I come here and. Uh, the reality that 82% of white evangelicals voted for the man who's currently in office in this land, um, it, is, it is something that's very difficult for Australians to, to understand. Um, uh, how is it? For African Americans, it's not so difficult. <clears throat> yeah. Tell and me. I'll tell you why. Mm. When we look at the history of the emergence of the Christian church in the United States, it has always wrestled with the issue of an embodied justice. Hmm. So the same conversation around a Presbyterian church that would plant a church in a largely African-American uh, community was at the time when the denomination was still split. When you look at the history of denominations in this country, many of them split, much like there was a dividing line called the Mason-Dixon line where there were certain expectations north versus those south mm. because they wrestled over the, the fundamental question, does the gospel obligate those of us who are slave owners to liberate those who find salvation? That's, that's literally an argument wow. in the emergence of this church. Mm. This, this capital C church, this, this thing that is wrestling with the power of this gospel. And so, Part of what we had to, had to have was an awareness. You mentioned epistemology. Mm. We, you know, it, it's one of the components of a worldview mm -hmm. that the African captives who came over had a worldview yes. that allowed for um, uh, an implementation of a variation of a Christianity that would not affirm it 
from a position of dignity. So when we would steal away to the brush mm -hmm. harvest, to the ush harvest at night, mm -hmm. after our ancestors had picked from can't see to can't see, they would still get back and talk to the mystery of who God is and believe that in spite of what their human condition might be, mm -hmm. their souls were actually in good shape. Wow. And so when we come together and form, formed Belter's Presbyterian Church, it's the same church. My mother's wake was there when she passed. Mm -hmm. It's the church where, where we were nurtured as children. Mm -hmm. The reason it was so important to us is not that, you know, the Book of Order of Presbyterians versus the Book of Discipline for Methodists. You know, <laughs> the structure was not really the issue. Mm -hmm. The question is, where can you find an environment that creates the right conditions for an encounter? Mm -hmm that you may not ever be able to replicate nor measure again, mm. but is so life altering, so certain to you, mm. that it actually pushes you to know that there's nothing that can stop you because you more than anybody else know that the experience you had is one that is certain all the way down to your core. Wow. So in that church, in that framework, it's where I became aware of my calling when, yes. you know, I was I was a teenager, but mm. I, I ran. Oh, I ran. <laughs> I ran. Um, but it also afforded me a grace to come back when the time was right. Yeah, wow. And not feel like I had missed my opportunity mm -hmm. since, uh, simply because um, I decided I wanted to play Jonah. Mm. Mm. Right? So, you know, I think when we talk about the contexts, you know, these are these are issues that have been a part of the conversation. When when an evangelical church will say that they leave room for this president, mm. it is the survivor of the same evangelical church that endorsed slavery. Goodness. So it doesn't surprise me that there are some who would say they will grant the president a mulligan. Because giving him a do-over never forces us to deal with who we really need to see as dignified and human, and that's the victims. Mm. You're trying to protect the wrong one. So we're sitting here criticizing the woman who comes in and washes Jesus' feet with her hair mm -hmm. because the men sitting around the table know a little something about her background, and so she's mm -hmm. now disqualified. But the guilty one is the one who refused to wash Jesus' feet upon coming into the house. Ooh. Yeah. So our issue is, is we've inverted the meaning of the gospel because we keep trying to protect the wrong person in the story. Ooh. So what, what, does it, what does it mean to grow up in a reality where the texts that are so sacred for you are used to chaplain the Pharaoh of the day? instead of found in the places where bricks are being made. Like yeah. It means that there is an opportunity that few people will ever want to embrace because it comes with a high risk. Hmm. It says that this life-giving resource called the gospel when the conditions are, as we have discussed, requires us to confront mm. Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. It is in that confrontation that actually the value of the gospel is proven. Yes. When Moses wrestles mm -hmm. with how he's going to persuade Pharaoh to let the children go, mm. God says to Moses, what do you have in your hand? Mm. He says, a staff, throw it down. Mm. becomes a serpent, pick it up. When he gets in the presence of Pharaoh, knowing that he's got some power, when Pharaoh resists, he throws down the staff. But Pharaoh's crew, not being shaken, they throw their staffs down too. <laughs> and their staffs too turn into serpents. Mm. But what happens is, is that the power that was presumed by Moses gets proven in the conflict. Ooh. We keep wanting to avoid the conflict, yet we want to claim the power. Wow. You can't claim power that's not been tested because there is no framework for you to prove, to bear out, to confirm mm. 
that it is what you think it is. And so many times we, we want to negotiate our way out of things that will only be resolved if we confront them. Wow, yeah. So when, when it comes to your experience and the gift of your experience, which um, since being in the womb has, has been a communal experience of uh, a people who have um, uh, sung in such a way where, um, uh, like, uh, I always find it like such a phenomenal picture to imagine people singing, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there, mm -hmm. while who's up on the porch is a person there singing about. And there's this word of encouragement that is this radical affirmation of not everybody calling me Lord, Lord. We'll be saved. That's right. <laughs> we'll be saved. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and there is this communal solidarity that um, uh, that which was given to a enslaved has actually um, been taken back as liberation. What gifts for those who are listening, and I'm very aware a lot of the listeners and watchers are, will be people from my part of the world mm -hmm. who um, uh, might be three or four generations removed from uh, regular worship attending, whether it be synagogues, mosques, or churches, and they're exploring uh, uh, the power of these scriptures for the first time and hearing your story. What, what gift would you offer them from your own experience to help them read the Bible in ways that do turn the world upside down instead of playing into mm -hmm. the hands mm -hmm. of either the slave owners or those <coughs> who sit in power in this nation at the moment, or the 82% who can be um, blind to the reality and deaf to the cries of what is going on in the streets where you passed up? There's a lot in that question. <laughs> so one, let, let me let me acknowledge that's, that's a danger of preachers asking well, yeah, let, questions. Yeah, let, yeah, let, let, so, let me acknowledge that before before I give you an answer that's simple. It's simple because that there's a lot in in that question. There is a durability in the gospel mm. that invites us to push the gospel to the fullness of the extent that grace and hope become available to everybody. Wow. If we are merely content with the gospel that made room for us, mm. then we've totally missed the power of the gospel. Yes. Jesus affirms in Sunday school one morning what Isaiah wrote in chapter 61. Mm. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. But the most important piece in that is to preach good news to the poor. Yes. Poor in conditions, poor in outlook, poor in anticipation. Mm. That allows us to stretch. There's somebody that's going to feel that they're beyond the reach of a God that we say is loving and kind. Mm. And the reason that limitation is in place is because we stay wedged between uh, two themes of oppression. Mm. Jim Cohn wrote, God of the Oppressed, yes. and Paulo Freire wrote, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Mm. God is on the side of the oppressed, mm. but in the pedagogy of the oppressed, right? How, how do we teach how to fight mm -hmm. oppression yes. is to recognize that the, the parties in conflict trying to resolve this distinction about oppression are in the same boat. They both wow. need liberation simultaneously just from different ends of the same issue. Wow. And so folks will look at The Wire and think Baltimore and mm -hmm. miss that Methodism in America mm. started here. Wow. The oldest Catholic diocese in America is here. Wow. That the origins of the expansion of a gospel that crossed the water Yes. Just like the trafficking in human bodies crossed that same water. Mm. The, the figure of Alex Haley's ancestry, known as Kunta Kinte, mm. came off the boat in Annapolis. 
Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, walk these grounds. If you're not aware, you'll get sucked into thinking that the ground is cursed. Huh. When in reality, the blood of martyrs are crying out from this ground demanding justice. Mm. And so one perspective is, yeah, feels like the wire. Mm. But there's another piece that says if we get beyond just kind of surface analysis and engagement, mm. there's a depth to an opportunity here where where we really are is at the ground zero of a model of social and political transformation that can then be replicated anywhere else you want to drop it if folks are just willing mm. to use what's in their hand. Wow. One, one of the biggest challenges, and I, I might edit this out, but I'll, I'll share this with you. Sure. Like, um, one of the biggest challenges that was offered Luca just hit full story. Oh, well, good, because we don't need to hear me. So we'll, okay. I'll, I'll give you this one back. And uh, I'll put mine in and see how. Yeah, but one of the biggest challenges of my life came from uh, Uncle Vincent Harding. Mm -hmm. He was incredibly mm -hmm. generous mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. and um, to people that I was mentoring at home and... Um, uh, and uh, sharing with him the, the work that um, we were doing around uh, refugee policy yes. in, in Australia, which, um, you know, Donald Trump sent people to Australia to learn about how we're doing our cruelty because it, it's, it's so horrific. Um, mm. And he, he challenged and he said, your work is not inspired by the freedom movement. It's a continuation of it which I just thought was so incredibly generous. Um, but then he went on to say that that lays at your feet an incredible, um, uh, incredible power, but also an incredible responsibility yeah. to be worthy yeah. of that, to, to, to live into and to tell the stories of like Tuckman and Douglas in this place, like, I mean, as, as a mum's side of my family are Russian Jews, dad's side Irish Catholic, dad came out um, in the 70s to Australia. And I mean, that hits me in a powerful way. I can't mm. imagine mm. if to be connected to that story in, in such a way as people here are, the power that... And there we go. I think, I think we're back on. Ooh. Is this one? Yeah, that one's. Pastor Todd, would you be as generous with us as to choose a passage of scripture and actually speak to it? Um, I will lift up that text that bridges the distinctions that we often draw between the Old and the New Testament. Hmm. And it is uh, that which was recorded by Isaiah and repeated by Jesus. And I will put it in this context because you just mentioned Vincent Harding. Hmm. The title, There's a River, mm. will resonate with you. Mm. When I think about the title, There's a River, and the word hope that's in that title, it reminds me of a river that I visited in Ghana when I would travel there fairly regularly when I was still in the classroom. The river's in a village called Asenmanso. Mm. That was the last place where many of those who were taken captive only to find themselves on the ships that would eventually take them to the new world. Mm. That was the last place that many of them would bathe. It's a place where baptism would happen. It's also the place where many who were in fear for their very young children would 
have to embrace the most horrific choice of any parent. To keep their children from having to ever experience the horror of losing the sense of dignity and personhood mm. that for some of those who ended up on ships, they bathed there. For other infants and young children, they were actually delivered there, delivered by a process where the parents would often do the one thing that they felt was merciful, and that's to drown their children in that river. Oppression pushes folks to make otherwise just unthinkable choices mm. because we who have been spared being in that position have never had to consider what we might do. It's always hypothetical mm -hmm. to us. So what do you do when you're in a position really of privilege having been insulated very often from some of those struggles? Mm. How do you understand this gospel? And what is the obligation that I embrace and assume in accepting a gospel that has been given to me freely? Mm. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn mm -hmm. and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, mm -hmm. the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Mm -hmm. We see the same conditions. Some folks see the wire. Mm. And other folks see the opportunity to model a kind of righteousness that will never surrender to the despair that comes with assuming that this is just the city of the wire. Mm. And so we can't give in to the cynicism of a distorted Christianity that has now turned the notions of grace into something as simple as a mulligan. Mm. We don't surrender. And when we confront, we confront in love. Yeah. But love and confrontation do go together out of necessity, otherwise there will never be good news for the poor. Mm. Mm. And so this invitation my mama sung to me mm. because one day I might be the one who would have to learn by those same intonations and rhythms to sing somebody else's blues yeah. so that they might know they're not struggling alone. Mm. And then to say, if you're not free, mm. I'm not free. So let's be free together. Mm. Wow. It's, it's incredible. And, and, and hearing you read it, given sharing your personal story and hearing how easy to not go through that great exchange because it's understandable the despair and the sorrow is so universal and 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 the the misery um, and to be to be met with the kind of news that 
a garment of praise is being offered in exchange for. Um, because there's so much Christianity that's exported from this nation that shows mm. up early morning television mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. my nation, where mm -hmm. it's you skip over that whole journey. Like uh, there, there is no exchange. There, there is, there is no entering into the sorrow, the misery, the uncertainty of how long is this journey going to take. Mm. The vulnerability of having to go through the storms that you don't even have the luxury of seeing them coming. Mm. The first time you become aware of them is when they're upon you. <laughs> because you're the cargo. Mm. A little different experience. It's a different experience when you stand in the male slave dungeon of Elmina. Mm. You can still smell the residue of human excrement in the walls. It's a different experience when that which we complain about, we have no idea, mm. no remote idea of what suffering even looks like. Mm -hmm. It is conceptual on its best day for the vast majority of us who do this work. Mm. But until you've entered in, even to the remnant, the recollection of what once was, you'll always miss the power of this gospel. Well, and when their cross has been reduced as something less than confrontation, there, there is no invitation into that place of where we might have to share in the cries that Christ shared in, in the pain-riddled poetry of the 22nd Psalm that a church that doesn't enter into that can't offer a good news to places where, where people are facing no hope. If you don't understand confrontation, mm. you will never understand the gospel. Mm. Remember that Jesus' very arrival was confrontation. It turned everything on its head. Mm. The designation of the birthplace being the hood. Mm -hmm. The awareness of the governor mm. that a power struggle is emerging. The recognition that the establishment of what was the dominant religion of the day now has to wrestle with a new praxis mm. of how we do this thing called ministry. Mm. How do you make room for those who may not have been first, mm. but they're still included? Mm -hmm. So, Pastor, as we, and you've been so generous with your time, as we come to an end, if, uh, I mean, because it would be a wonderful reality if white supremacy was only a reality on this nation, but the uh, Australia might not have a history of slavery like the history of slavery mm -hmm. on this continent, but mm -hmm. we have a history of white supremacy that was a history of genocide with the First Peoples. Mm -hmm. um, as our time comes to an end, what altar call would you offer those of us who are melanin-challenged, such as myself, who, though my family are only recently white on my nation, mm -hmm. because there mm -hmm. used to be these signs that said, no blacks, no Chinaman, no Irish, no dogs. Yeah. But the Irish in Australia since the 1940s, we've been white. And Jews, uh, after the Shoah, after the Holocaust, we've become white in, in Australia too. So I benefit from what Uncle Vincent would always tell me, don't call it a privilege, Jared, to, in his soft, slow tones, <laughs> to, to benefit from the oppression of others. Right. Find another word. Right. For those of us who can benefit from the oppression of others, but want to follow this bloke from Nazareth on the journey that he's going to, what altar call would you leave us with as we seek to go on this journey of repentance? If you're going to combat white supremacy, you have to combat historical revisionism. Mm. We have to tell the story accurately. Mm. We can't just gloss over the facts that are a bit inconvenient to us. Mm. So at some point, 
science, the discovery of archaeology mm. can be helpful. Mm. When they found Lucy, they found her in Africa. Mm -hmm. When they found the oldest ancestor upright walking, who had a DNA connection to the Jewish people in Israel of ancient days and antiquity, mm. they found him in Africa. Mm -hmm. And then that bridge was actually completed a few days ago. But the oldest upright walking hominid outside of Africa was just found in that place that we call Israel. Wow. Our issue has become one of race. Mm. But if we were to really be honest about it, location and geography is a gnarly thing. <laughs> you can't just pick up a continent and move it. Mm. God invites us to be African. Amen. Wow. And I say that with all of the complexity that comes with it, because if you ever go to the continent, course, you see of all of the shades yep. and variations that yep. you're going to find. But in terms of the intonation, that my mama sang to me as an African mama. Mm. She raised me as an African boy mm. so that I might appreciate that in that place that links all of the nuance and the distinction and the peculiarity that has become the variations of ethnicity and culture, we can always look back to that thing that binds us. Mm. The gospel points to the creation, the creation points to the creator, mm. and the creator invites us into relationship mm. so that if we stay connected, everybody can have a seat at the table. Amen. You mentioned Jim Cohn earlier. Yeah. Um, uh, I had the honor of meeting him 2015 and I, I went forward with um, uh, his newest book at the time, Cross and Lynching Tree, um, for him to, to sign it. And um, he, he was signing and, and didn't look up and, you know, I'm some white kid from the other and um, I just said, it's, it's an honor to meet you, Dr. Cohn. And, um, you had a huge impact on me when I first went to seminary at mm -hmm. 20 years old. And, and he said, you're Australian. And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, he, he stood up and he walked around the table and he gave me this big hug. And I'm embarrassed, but I started to cry. And I, I still, to this day, I couldn't tell you why I cried, but I, I cried. And um, he hugged even tighter. And uh, then he tapped me and he was like... I think he said something like there, there, or something so motherly and loving. And then he pulled back me by the shoulders and looked at me and he had tears in his eyes. Mm, mm -hmm. And he told me that, uh, he invited me to lunch and we had lunch together, it was like phenomenal. And he told me that in 1970, um, after um, uh, the publication of um, A Black Theology of Liberation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, he traveled to Australia and he went to Alice Springs, which mm -hmm. um, is a, high Aboriginal population, mm -hmm, and he mm -hmm. shared his material with Aboriginal leaders there. Um, and still to this day, like, um, uh, you can hear in um, Aboriginal churches, which is a very different experience, it's much like First Nation churches here. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. a complex, it's a different story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you can still hear the intonations of Cohen's work um, and the, the affirmation of God is black and how um, that was taken in Australia to um, the, the rainbow spirit, which is uh, the missionary said was evil because it was a serpent, and how do you worship a serpent? But for, for um, a lot of the Aboriginal people groups, it, it's a symbol of what stays the same yet can change its skin. Yes. What, what is always yes. moving but yes. is immutable. Yes. What, it, it's, it's the spirit of God. And uh, it, it was such an incredibly um, powerful experience for me personally, but being able to go home and tell um, uh, my friends when I'm ministering in uh, Aboriginal church settings that James Cunningham, they think they're discovering him now. And I was like, no, 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 we've got to find the stuff from Alice Springs yeah. and rediscover the gifts back and forward. Just a nuance. Words have meanings. Mm. I listen. When you tell the story of meeting Dr. Cohn and 
I just heard you say of yourself, hey, I'm just this white kid. Mm. But when you recognize, Dr. King, Dr. Cone recognizes you based on a geography that leads to a cultural identity, not a racial one. Mm -hmm. He says, oh, you're from Australia. Mm. When we see ourselves by the categories of race and racism, mm -hmm. we lose the sense of wonder yes. when we are met in new relationships. Well, you're an Australian kid. Mm. You're not a white kid. Hmm. You give up too much if you simply become a white kid. Yeah. So, Doctor, talk, talk to me about the complexity because I'm also aware as soon as I step foot on this continent, yeah. um, because of the way I look, I'm not going to be followed around the 7 Eleven when I'm picking up something. Uh, I'm going to walk like not far from here and be related to as if I'm buying. Uh, not in the same way as how how do I move through um, uh, like it's like when Owen three had me at um, uh, Trinity, Trinity just as mm -hmm. a, a guest and asked me to stand and uh, like the culture of honor it's like I spent time with um, Dr Cornell West and the first ten minutes of his talk he's he's just drawing the connections and he's drawing the dots and he's honoring and he's re knitting the family that you talked about right at the start, so people receive it in this mm -hmm, loving mm -hmm, family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the, the prophetic black church tradition, I, I am me because of it, and yet there, there is so much... I'm even sensitive to the realities of my hair um, here versus my hair at home and surf culture at home and Aboriginal culture at home and what my hair means here. Um, there versus when I step off a plane here and, you, you know, um, uh, United Staff are kind and um, uh, a sister says that um, she likes my dreads and all the rest. But it's also like, what advice do you have? For, because I, I don't, I don't want to thank you, God, that I'm not like white Americans because we've got our own complexity. And when I'm here and particularly when I'm ministering here, um, trying to model something that does look like repentance instead of this, oh, that's not me, I'm not mm. racist. Mm -hmm. As if we're not all, like, all white supremacy, that's stuff that shows up in your dreams and, and marks your internal life. And regardless of what, like... And the deception of white supremacy mm. is intended to keep the masses of folks who share an appearance... Mm -hmm in a posture where they will protect those who are benefited from the deception. Hmm. So here's what happens. If you study race history and racial classification in the United States, being white has a varying meaning on appearance. Hmm. That there are some folks who are much darker than you that were classified as white mm. because the perceived value that they would bring would, would be best served to put them in a place of perceived privilege mm. so that they would then help reinforce structural inequity. The other part is that there are folks who are black mm. that look just like you mm. in my family. Mm. Very much black. Mm. So when we start talking about these absolutes of classification, mm -hmm. they come short of any standardized notion of what we're talking about. That's why being aware of our affiliation with land that has names, right? That's why you know we went from being Negro to being black to being black America, to being Afro, you know, black American, Afro-American, then African-American, is because land helps us to appreciate cultural nuance, language mm -hmm. nuance. What language is white? Mm-hmm. Totally. Right? What yeah. language is black? Because language tells us a lot about uh, values and structure and worldview yeah. and relationship. But if we just distill it down to y'all look white, mm-hmm, 
Well, truth of the matter is, if I go back and look at my family album on my dad's side, particularly, mm. I ain't so sure. When I look at you, I'm like, mm, yeah, maybe so. But the eyes kind of tell me a little something different. I'm looking at the texture of the hair. I'm watching, but I'm like, yeah, I got some cousins. Hmm. And if I go to family reunion right now, I'm like, yeah, you look like some of them cousins. <laughs> that now we share genetics hmm. that may not necessarily allow us to claim the same political identity. Wow, yeah. Race is a political identity. Yes. It does nothing to advance the conversation of cross-pollination. Yeah. Race is is the specious nature that allows us to cross-contaminate otherwise holy ground. Mm. So I heard it in your meeting. You, you said, I'm this white guy. Jim Cohn sees you, says, ah, you're from Australia. Yeah. Now you're having a cultural conversation that allows you to explore one another, mm. where if it had just stayed as a racial mm. encounter, mm. It was going to have us all get caught up in the deception. The, the, the fallacy of race mm. is that we have been so poisoned by not being able to appreciate the fullness of who we are in descriptive terms that allow us to engage into, in some serious mutual sharing and learning yes. about one another is we, we have now distilled it down to the simple assumptions that the culture uh, assigns to us. Yeah. Right? So... Look, um, you have no idea how incredibly helpful that is. Because in terms of the, the refugee issue at home, um, the, the default factory settings for Australia since Federation, first week uh, in Parliament, white Australia policy was passed. White Australia policy. Like um, the inspiration for apartheid came from mm. the state that mm. I live in and mm. the policies uh, that they put in place. And the whole thing with refugees is that they don't fit with the default setting. And I'm like, I go back one generation in my family to armed conflict um, with the British, mm -hmm. my dad's generation, mm -hmm. my dad's generation. Mm -hmm. And yet I show up and the reality of, um, so my, my son, uh, um, he's 21, so I met him when he was 10, um, but he's very much my boy. Mm -hmm. um, but his hues on these streets with the reality of what happened not far from here in 2015, mm -hmm. um, I would fear for him here. And so he, with his friends, went to Japan for a snowboarding uh, thing after saving up his uh, money. He's 30 university. He's 21 out of a 21 year old. It's crazy. But his, um, his reality is that in Australia, he doesn't face because um, the police thing in Australia, um, it looks different to here, and our gun laws are different to here. Mm -hmm. um, but Tyson gets asked all the time, where are you from? One person put it as crudely as, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. No one ever asked me. Like, mm -hmm. no, one, no one cares where I'm from, because the assumption is that um, I'm European, so I'm quote unquote Australian. While both sides of my family have gifts to offer, have stories of struggle um, and, and horror, and that could bring something. But white people trade their stories and identities and, and source of what would be a rich exchange for the benefits of what Uncle Vincent said, never call that a privilege to benefit from the oppression of others. Yeah. The, um, hmm. So the notion of apartheid as a legal fiction hmm. was learned globally mm. from this country. Wow. The entire legal system of the United States is built on the ability to use coercive effort or force if necessary to achieve one's own necessary ends. Mm. It started with the displacement of our original peoples here. Mm. In a case called um, Johnson v. McIntosh. There's a fight over a transfer of land that was made uh, by an original community short of there being a deed, an actual document. And later on, the transfer, the second level transfer gets challenged about which of the two people who feel like they have a valid right or claim of ownership to land would win. 
Mm. Here's what's in that room. That because the structure of the original people did not match the structure that the early settlers inherited from their own oppressor, gave them the authority and the permission to institute on their own, independent of any other prior consideration, a system that would allow them to make claim, legal claim that was enforceable by force, if necessary, to the exclusion and the denial of the rights of the people who were already there. Mm. So when we think about it, we've seen this play out before. We saw it, uh, the Berlin Conference, when they carved up the continent of Africa and colonialism. Mm -hmm. We see it in terms of uh, the giving of Puerto Rico mm -hmm. in the settlement of the war with Spain. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we get the land and they don't get the benefit. So years later, you have the perpetuation of colonial infrastructure mm -hmm. when it's time to rebuild recognizing that there really is no recourse. Wow. So simply calling them citizens doesn't make it so if they can't behave as citizens do. Wow. That's our issue. Yeah. We've all been caught in the trap of claiming a less than identity mm. that only serves the interest of folks who never speak of themselves in the same way. Mm -hmm. The wealthy always talk about what they have. They never talk about skin color. Mm. They don't say I'm a white wealthy dude. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you don't add superfluous words to the conversation, right? Mm. We who are fighting over the vast uh, abundance of the fewest amount of resources trying to meet the greatest need mm. have to figure out some artificial, superficial way to prioritize and legitimize claims on what we have settled for as our portion. Wow. And because the fight over the minimal yes. keeps those who control the vast majority of the resources, keeps them insulated and safe, and it allows them to claim innocence because they have no direct hand in it. Yeah. If we wanted to cure the issue of inequity and inhumanity, if we decide that we're going to sit down at the table and start claiming for ourselves a different reference point that allows us to engage in conversation, I believe the first brick that will dismantle oppression as we have known it will begin to fall. And mm. the way you will know it for sure is that the counter will be that will create such a fear on those who benefit from it that they will reinstitute a violent force, whatever it may need to be, to protect. That's what slavery was. Mm. That's what colonialism has mm. been. That's what the election of a Trump means to us. And it, it's also why King was crucified with that gun at the Lorraine Motel. It was a poor people's campaign. He was in Memphis with sanitation workers. Like it, it's about economic realities and the you know the Disneyfication or Santa Clausification, um, Cornell West calls it, of King, it removes any reference to anything other than segregation. So King's economic vision and what the Poor People's Campaign was going to make and Resurrection City and that whole vision for um, what Bayard Rustin, uh, again, in terms of a new march on Washington, that disappears from all conversation. And we, we strip Jesus of his jubilee economics and yeah. strip, strip King of his Christian democratic socialism and we don't have anything to actually, like, what fills that place is just the neoliberal economics of Reaganism in this country. The deception is rooted in revisionist history mm. and a revisionist reading of scripture. Wow. King talked about the three great evils being poverty, racism, and war. Mm. They're still the three great evils. Yeah, well, yeah. And all of them have an economic, value to them yes. that requires the institutionalized structure of the oppressor to make sure that at any given time, any one or all three of them are sustainable. Yeah. You have a warmonger in the White House. Yeah. 
that has just done a further damage on the distribution of necessary resources and attributed them to the extremely wealthy yeah. that reinforces the depth and the despair of poverty. And then the, the, the baiting, the race baiting, the dog whistling that comes with some of the things. Just look at whoever sits with him whenever he signs his document. Mm. It looks like, you know, a bunch of old white guys. I mean it white guys just that way because there is there's no cult no 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 desire to, when yeah. you have a Stephen Miller who will largely write the speech that we will hear tonight listen very carefully because dog whistles always get a response you just can't hear the signal wow wow pay attention tonight yeah 